With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. I'm your host for After 9 today, Eric Allen. My guest today, excuse me, for the first half hour will be Albert Kohler. And uh, I'm just going to walk him, or not walk him through, but talk him through a number of different things, ask him questions, and he's going to try to answer it, and hopefully uh, we'll have an interesting half hour. I want to start, uh, Albert just got back from a vacation in Germany, his hometown is Bremen, Germany, and just, Albert, if you could just give us a sense of what you did and, and what you thought about while you were there, and then if you can go from there into... Make a comparison between municipal politics in Germany and municipal politics in BC or Prince George. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Uh, it's a wonderful morning, and it's uh, good to be back in uh, wonderful BC, and especially the interior, which I like and live here now for more than twenty-five years. Uh, True, I've been in uh, Germany on a vacation. Uh, for well three weeks, and uh, the reasons were several. Uh, first of all, my my oldest brother uh, had uh, a wedding anniversary and sixtieth year wedding anniversary, and it was celebrated with hundred people. And there were <coughs> around the family events, many other celebrations. So we spent uh, a little more than a week in and uh, in around Bremen which is a city in the northern part of uh, Germany we also visited uh, relatives of uh, my wife she's in the south Germany and we have been in Munich uh, for a few days and also visited this uh, uh, castle which is called Neuschwanstein in south Germany so some some of you may have heard about this castle it was always a dream of mine to visit this and yes we have the <coughs> municipal elections coming up here and uh, if I compare this sometimes I do this to what's happening in Germany the system is I would say is very very similar um, with the difference though that uh, uh, councillors uh, get paid either nothing depends on the size of the city or community or uh, if it's a big community uh, or city yeah, then they get paid but if it comes up to a community of um, let's see, like Prince George, um, the councils uh, don't get paid; uh, they get uh, expenses paid, but uh, that's about it. And um, one can think about what's right or wrong; um, it's just different. Um, <clears throat> I had to get used again for the uh, three weeks to the density of the population. Um, if I compare this with uh, what we have here. Um, Germany actually fits two and a half times um, area-wise into BC. And if we would like to have the same population density in uh, BC, we would have to have 220 million people living in BC. And that's very difficult to comprehend for many. So just imagine, uh, now we have, uh, I guess, a little bit more than 4 million in BC, and Imagine we have 220 million people in BC. That's the population density of Germany. Uh, I had to get used to driving on the autobahn again, which I was used to many, many years ago. Um, some of the stretches are without speed limits, and uh, I had a little uh, Volkswagen Polo 
and it showed on the tachometer up to maximum speed 260. I didn't try this, but uh, you could. <clears throat> Coming back to uh, my time there, I enjoyed it very much. The weather was great, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be here back in wonderful BC, as I mentioned, in, in, in Canada. <clears throat> so, coming up here with the election, uh, it should be very, very interesting. Uh, and uh, I hope that the participation and, uh, <clears throat> and at, uh, at the voting will be high, uh, because there is obviously a change, uh, we need a change, and I would like to leave it there, Eric, if you have another within, another question. Otherwise, I keep on rambling. Okay. So we'll just, I just wanted to ask <clears throat> or give a kind of an overview here. This is the, uh, the uh, voter turnout. And uh, 2008, it was 16,946. 2011, it was 15,266.00. 2014, 19,710, going downhill there. And uh, 2018, 13,184. So the total registered voters are people who are el eligible to vote. Now, this is kind of important because you can kind of connect it to population growth in a kind of a different sort of way. 2008, we had 52,122 eligible voters. 2011, 52,495, 2014, 53,229, and 2018, 54,852. So <clears throat> went up a couple thousand over a 10-year period, 273 a year or something average. So it's not very much. And, and there's a big, big difference between the number of eligible voters and the number of people who actually turned out to vote. And if you sort of did an exercise on the ones that did come to vote, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how you would do this, but how many of them was a husband and wife team <laughs> going down, and how many were actually individuals or, or younger people or whatever? And and I think a, a possibly a third of them lived in the same house, and so therefore, if one went, the other went, and I don't know how that would be if, you know, anyway, Albert, maybe you just want to touch on what your thoughts are on voter turnout, and what do you think we can do about that? And that's that's a tough one, and and I agree, it it uh, doesn't look good to have such a low voter turnout. Of uh, I would say, when you look at the eligible uh, voters, then it's uh, somewhere between ten and and twenty percent. Uh, so uh, and uh, people complain about this and that, and I would say, if you don't vote, don't complain, go out and vote. Uh, what can be done about it? Um, well, we certainly would have to get the media involved and, uh, and write maybe an article about it, uh, get uh, <clears throat> the radio involved and say, listen, you know, we have a change here now, a major change, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have so many uh, um, council candidates running and especially mayor candidates running and school board candidates running would get involved. This is a good place. It's worth it. It's a democracy. And just think what's happening now over there in, in Europe with Ukraine. Uh, we should be very happy to be here and utilize the right of, to vote. Uh, that's what I can say. And yes, I would say go out there and vote. 
and uh, that should be um, so we have a, a good uh, <coughs> good slate of uh, councils uh, councillors elected. Um, it's very difficult. Um, I, I mean, the, the voter turnout, I must say, is higher, much higher in Europe, because probably they are more politicized over there. And we, we have to get involved. Uh, what the solution is, I do not know. Okay. <coughs> this goes out, uh, also ties in with the uh, population for Prince George's surrounding areas. And, you know, the 2021 census showed Prince George population at 76,000-something. We thought, some people thought it was going to come in around 81,000. And, you know, there are some differences between the uh, B.C. government statistics on population and and, uh, the federal census. And there's different reasons for that. So maybe we could come in around 76, 78,000 maybe push it up a little bit higher than that but and that doesn't include the uh, you know the regional district and that so but if you look at some of the the cities and uh, I'll just mention a couple of these Albert and then we'll get into that mm-hmm. uh, Prince George shows a, uh, just over a 3% increase this is on the federal census Prince Rupert 0.07 uh, Quenelle 0.01 Terrace, 0.32. Terrace actually went up a bit. Um, I'm just getting uh, BC towns here to, in this north central BC, if I can, give us an idea. Chetwin actually had a, an 8% decrease. Um, Fort St. James, 13% decrease. Uh, what do we got here? Houston, 2% increase. Hudson's Hope, 17% decrease. Now, these aren't big numbers. I mean, Hudson Hope went from 1,000 down to 841, so that's 300 people, roughly. Uh, 250, maybe. Uh, Kitimat was up 1%. Mackenzie was down 11%. And this goes on all the way through the north central interior, and there's, there's no really good picture there showing any increase in population and there's a number of places that are actually decreasing now while that's happening we're, we're sort of getting the idea that seems to go around through Prince George certainly that Prince George is growing things are booming you know everything's going to break loose and sky's the limit in the future and looking at what's happening with the statistics I don't see that can you maybe comment on that well uh yeah, if, if first it's it's good to see growth in Prince George, uh, population growth, and whether those numbers are the actual right numbers is a different story because I think there are quite a few who are not filling out the stats papers, so we may uh, actually be higher than seventy six or eighty thousand. We may be a hundred thousand. I do not know, but uh, I'm I'm convinced that. Uh, there are many <clears throat> who do not fill out uh, the paper which they should. Um, so that's good uh, to see a certain growth there. Um, and it probably is due to 
what's happening in Prince George. Uh, don't forget the uh, educational opportunities. We have this university. We have the college, an expanded college. Uh, we have uh, an expanded uh, healthcare system, a regional uh, hospital, and now also a cancer clinic. That certainly draws people uh, more to Prince George than, for instance, to uh, Terrace or to any of the other communities. And um, why the other communities shrink a little bit here or there, uh, that probably has to do with uh, with econ economics. Um, look at the forestry. Where's the forestry now? And uh, th there seems to be a certain shift of um, <clears throat> of employment jobs and of the economy uh, as such, which you probably cannot see within one year. But uh, when we look at at five years or even more then we have to see this shift which is there. Um, uh, the forestry certainly is there and, and still there and should be there, but it's changing. There are less jobs now in the forestry than, for instance, five years ago. Um, yeah, uh, and then it comes down, I think, very much to education, education, education. And sorry, Alan, if I'm always pounding on, on this. Young people in smaller communities they are looking for education, and they not necessarily have that in their community. So um, they come to Prince George, live here for a certain time, and and unfortunately not necessarily stay here, but take off to another place. So. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I could see that. The uh, uh, provincial, I mentioned the provincial stats before because they don't they use a different system to arrive at their uh, their numbers, and uh, one of them is. is uh, People on social programs, uh, uh, employers send in a report every month to the government who's working for them, that type of thing. And so that's why you might have the provincial statistic shows a population of 81,000 and uh, the federal system shows 76. Right. But it's pretty, it's pretty good, uh, uh, indicator that it's not more than 81,000. Yeah. And, and the other th thing with that is, uh, the provincial systems, if I got it, if I understand it correctly, if you're working three jobs, they'll count you three times. That could be because they're using the payroll yep. for the company, so their their numbers are off. So we don't have solid numbers no. to work with, but we do. This indicates to me that over that period of time, this that's from 2016 to 2021, mm -hmm. that there's not much going on here. And I agree that you know the forest industry. I'm going to get into this a little bit later about how much, how many jobs we're losing there, but you know we need a replacement for those jobs. <laughs> you know, it's because I mean we could have schools and universities and everything, but if we don't have jobs, we don't have anything. They'll have to send us all the money from Vancouver just to live here. So, and so it's always a question of what are we going to replace them with. How are we going to grow actual jobs where people can go to work and and that type of thing? And have you got any ideas on that? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, everybody or companies are these days uh, looking for um, people who to employ, and and the jobs are there. Obviously, uh, my son has a land surveying company, and and he is looking for uh, employees and can't find them. And he said, "Dad, where are they?" And I hear this from many not just here in Prince George, all over the place, uh, they're not there. One explanation may be that the whole slate of baby boomers is out and not there anymore. 
And adding to that, the pandemic, where uh, many, uh, you know, have been pushed out of the job because of whatever reason and don't want to go back, um, that's that's one one side uh, the, where we really need uh, people uh, and uh, why the unemployment uh, rate is uh, reasonably low. Um, where do we need people uh, and how do, do we get them? I don't know. Um, yes, we have the university and we would like to fill the university, which has now... Uh, yeah, so... Or maybe I should continue afterwards. Sure, we'll we'll just take a break here, Good. and then we'll get back to Albert, and we'll get into this some more. Thanks. So. Find out what's happening in and around Prince George for the latest community events and happenings. Tune in to After 9 weekday mornings at 9 o'clock on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Your host for the day will interview everybody from local politicians to cultural contributors and a whole lot more. Stay in the know with After 9 weekday mornings at 9 o'clock only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. If you missed the live broadcast, catch the repeats every Sunday to Thursday night at 10. Copar Administration is celebrating 25 years of providing quality employment services to communities in B.C. and Alberta. Whether you are looking for a job or looking to hire, the key is finding the right fit. The friendly team at Copar can help with hiring events, resume, cover letter and interview assistance, wage subsidies, training, new hire supports and more. The best part is all of Copar's employment services are free. Find the right fit today. Contact Copar Administration at coparadmin.ca. People for jobs, jobs for people. Is your small business ready to meet the economic challenges ahead? Do you have a clear vision to move your nonprofit forward? We can help. Hi, it's Norm Adams here from Pivot Leader, inviting you to join Dave Fuller and I December the 14th for our fifth annual Strategic Planning Day. If you're a small business or nonprofit leader, join us Wednesday, December 14th at the Prince George Golf and Curling Club for our fifth annual Strategic Planning Day. For more details, visit us at pivotleader.com. We look forward to seeing you then. Forecast for Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud this morning, clearing early this afternoon with a high of 23. Clear tonight, fog patches developing overnight and a low of 7. For Tuesday, sunny and a high of 22. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back <clears throat> with my guest, Albert Kohler, and we're talking about the economy in uh, North Central B.C. When I refer to North Central B.C., I'm basically talking about, say, Fort St. John to Haida Gwaii to 100-mile house that type of thing. And the population in that area is roughly 300,000 people, which is about 200,000 less than in Surrey. Although we have the same land base roughly as Surrey and Kamloops. Kamloops got about the same land base as us, but different dynamics in Kamloops, I think. So back to the question of if we don't have the forest industry and it's basically going down, it's not going up, then the question is, how do we create jobs? What kind of a uh, industry can we bring to town? And how do we get whatever is produced to market? So any ideas on that, Albert? And that's a, a good question, how to uh, you know, give it a jolt and how to uh, start it up again or make sure that we maintain jobs or increase jobs or get a different industry to town. Um well, the, the the forestry industry is kind of not going down, it's going sideways, and uh, 
and the jobs will be less. Uh, it's interesting that some sawmills now will uh, pick up logs from Boron Lake and far, far away, uh, which uh, certainly makes the timber more expensive, unfortunately. And we wouldn't know what's happening in five years from now. Um, <clears throat> there would have to be, I think, a kind of strategy meeting, and I hope that the council, next councils, uh, can focus on that as well. It's, the focus seems to be on homelessness, which is fine, but there seems to be a very strong uh, focus on the next five to ten years, what uh, should be focused on when it comes to people living in Prince George, people coming to Prince George, and where are the jobs? And uh, we come back to... Um, to something we said, Albert, uh, if we uh, educate them properly, come back to education, uh, my pet peeve, then they will create jobs. They are job creators. We have now quite a few jobs that uh, have nothing to do with the forestry, different jobs. And that probably will continue, um, and hopefully we can maintain the population base in Prince George and hopefully also in outlying areas and smaller cities. Uh, Wendehof is the only one who kind of was, as far as I know, holding uh, the population and even increasing it a little bit. Um, and they have done uh, some good things. Uh, Mayor uh, Jerry Thiessen has been quite involved in, in, uh, in looking after Wendehof, that Wendehof is not uh, shrinking. So, but there may be a little bit of an exemption. Um, coming back to... Uh, where do they come from, uh, people eventually, and and what do we have to do? It's it's tough. Um, the university has to get more people involved, but the university alone cannot do it. We can't just have university-educated uh, individuals only. But at the moment, I think the uh, student body there is around 3,500. Uh, the university has been designed for 8,000. So where are they? Why can't we attract them? and come to Prince George and live here and contribute to our economy. Um, <clears throat> we have the um, boundary road uh, place, uh, all the lands, and we have, actually I should say this, tomorrow and the day after I have a, a tour here of people coming from Vancouver touring Prince George and the available space uh, here. So I'm touring them with them. And so we will see what's happening there and what they can contribute to this. Um, many, many open questions, but I hope that the current, or the, sorry, the next council is focusing on that and not just homelessness and said, what can we do in Prince George to attract more people? There are good websites like My Prince George, for instance, um, advertising Prince George and all other cities, um, including Vancouver. It, it is happening slowly. Uh, people are coming from uh, from the lower mainland. My neighbor now just moved from Squamish. Another uh, person came from uh, uh, from the lower mainland as well, spending lots of money, um, <clears throat> buying a house for uh, 1.3 million. Another one just for uh, 2.3 million dollars uh, outside of Prince George, coming also from the lower mainland, which means they are escaping the tax base over there and the density over there and are looking for another life as I mentioned before. So there is a shift happening and that's not on a sudden but it probably takes a few years to really see what's happening here. Yeah, I can see that shift to a certain degree in uh, 
from Vancouver up here, you know, just for the difference in price of a house. But, you know, a place like Langley or something, a similar house in Langley and Prince George, uh, we pay a lot more taxes than they do in Langley and other places. So, And part of that reason is because we've got this 323-square-kilometer city, and we've got all the maintenance that goes with it. Very, very expensive. True. Compliments to the B.C. government and yeah. the 1975 amalgamation. We're still paying for that. And, uh, you know, we have to go all the way out to Foreman to plow roads. <laughs> True. So that's... And it used to be done by the, the provincial government or the regional district or something. So there's that. Um, I think we have to get the city people to be looking at other cities in Alberta and Saskatchewan mm-hmm. and Manitoba and see what they're doing. Like uh, in uh, Alberta, they have um, potato, potato chip and french fry plants. Mm-hmm. And they've got uh, like truckload after truckload after truckload of potatoes going in there 24-7. You know, there's two or three truckloads of potato chips come through here all the way to Prince Rupert every week. And, you know, Lethbridge and places like that, uh, those towns are sort of booming. And they've got jobs other than the oil industry or other than the lumber industry. And I think that's where we have to go. You know, whether it's some sort of, uh, and I don't know how it ties in with the free trade agreements that we have and the rest of it. But the government sounds like coming and they're going to basically force us to use electricity in our homes uh, and then uh, export the natural gas overseas. I think myself personally, it's just because if they don't force us to use electricity from Site C, they'll probably have to just let it go up in the air or wherever it goes if you don't use it. So we're going to use it for them and and make it look like they actually made a good decision by building Site C, which they didn't. Go ahead. Yeah, you're right. For instance, there are options to get uh, other industries and jobs here. Um, I, I've been looking for a slaughterhouse, for instance. Uh, farmers can't really utilize their, their, uh, uh, their property. They sell, for instance, Bay out west, they sell their property to, to China, and the hay is being compressed and also uh, exported uh, to, to China. All of this is wrong. We should do this here. We should entice the, the farmers and cattle owners uh, to uh, utilize the land in, in for our way. And there has been a discussion, I guess, not too long ago about a, a slaughterhouse in Prince George. So why not? So we have to not just say, we know this, we have to go, we imagine something, because imagination is limitless, but we have to imagine things that can be done. Yeah, and I heard about a slaughterhouse too, but I thought <clears throat> I thought I heard it was going to be, if it ever came, it would be in the Vanderhoof area. So, you know, but that's close enough. We're going to go for a break here? Yeah, you can say goodbye to Albert. Yeah, I'll say goodbye to Albert here. Thanks well, for coming in, Albert. We got halfway through okay. what I wanted to talk to you about, so sure. that means uh, we'll have to get you back for the other half. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> and I Thank really you. appreciate that. Oh, I'd like okay. to get it. Thank you. And we'll go for a break here, and then I'm going to have Peter on. Good. Thank you. Vantage Point's Essentials for New Managers is back this Tuesday. Lori Dizel and Samantha Tangeter will offer insights into understanding yourself and your role, delegation and performance management, and supporting your team. 
Registration and full details are available through the All Labs link under training at vantagepoint.ca. A program for new and aspiring not-for-profit managers to strengthen their management skills, Essentials for New Managers, the next three consecutive Tuesday evenings from 5.30 to 8.30 through the vantagepoint.ca. The BC Schizophrenia Society is seeking voices of family members and people living with schizophrenia for the next season of the Look Again Mental Illness Podcast. Thoughts, experiences, and opinions will be shared on a panel with preference given to people with lived experience and family members who are BIPOC. To take part, contact the Society by emailing communications at bcss.org and include a little information about yourself, what your experience is relating to schizophrenia, and your availability. Learn the fine art of working with watercolors with Lori Ann Maley Bell tomorrow through Thursday at Studio 2880. Set for three consecutive evenings from 6 to 8.30. The cost to participate is just $45. For more information or to register, call Lori at 780-720-3587. It's a watercolor workshop with Lori and Maley Bell. Three consecutive evenings from 6 to 8.30 starting tomorrow at Studio 2880, 2880 15th Avenue. Children spend a large portion of their day at school. Making healthy food choices for school is important because school lunches and snacks provide children with the energy and nutrients they need throughout the day and are a major source of essential vitamins and minerals they need to grow and develop. Health Canada suggests saving time in school lunch preparations by planning the weekend before, stock up on healthy on-the-go snacks, and think about making dinners which can be used as lunch leftovers. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. My guest now is Peter Ewart. And we're going to get into the BC Rail, the old BC Rail. uh, And the fact that the government, BC, leased it to uh, CN over, I think it was a 60-year lease, a 30-year Option and uh, ultimately you could go for 999 years depending on the situation. But Peter's going to go through it all and give us a bit of a history on it, and then we're I'm going to ask him some questions and try to figure out what, if anything, we can do about this. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, yeah um, well, I, I, what I wanted to talk about was the fact that uh, a substantial section of the C- CN railway track in the southern interior between Williams Lake and Squamish has been suspended for for a couple of years now. You know how how has this come about? Right, that uh, a major uh, section of rail track in British Columbia has been uh, uh, unused or or not able to be used by um, by others. And so there's a, a there's a background history here that I think is worth going into. Uh, as uh, Noted, this section of track and other parts of the interior rail line are now under the control of the giant North American monopoly, CN Rail. But it hasn't always been this way. Originally, the provincial railway was known as the Pacific Great Eastern Railway, the PGE, and it was chartered in 1912 and taken over by the province in 1918. Over the next 40 years or so, this publicly owned railway slowly expanded, reaching Prince George in 1952, Fort St. John in 1958, 1968, Fort St. James, and so on. And it eventually covered 2,320 kilometers of track across the province, providing both freight and passenger service. 
Now, BC Rail played a key role in province building and opening up the province for development and settlement. There's no doubt about it. In this province, uh, like as Albert was just talking about, you know, it's a very large province and mountainous province, and uh, the railway was important to pull the communities together and pull the province together. And it was highly, it was high, the railway was highly valued by British Columbians, especially those who lived in the southern and northern interior. It was generally a profitable, well-run railway, had some debt, but uh, it linked many communities and industries together and became the third largest railway in Canada by the 1990s. But this jewel in the crown of the province was coveted. In the 1990s, the provincial Liberal Party was out of power in opposition, and Gordon Campbell became the leader of the party with substantial funding from the North American Monopoly CN Rail. You know, indeed, uh, Campbell received uh, large amounts of money from CN for his leadership run. And overall, uh, in the 1990s, uh, the BC, the Campbell and the BC Liberals received $269,000 from CN Rail, all of which was uh, legal according to the, uh, the processes uh, that exist. But it was no secret that CN Rail had his eyes on taking over BC Rail. In the, 19, in the 1996 provincial election, Campbell and the, Ribbles, and the Liberals ran on a campaign to sell off and privatize BC Rail. However, there was a massive amount of opposition in the interior north of the province, from communities, unions, businesses, and suppliers, you know, lumber companies, miners, and so on. As a result, Campbell and the Liberals lost a close election. In the aftermath of that election, he did a mea culpa and said that he learned a lesson and that he would not sell off the railway if elected in the next election. In the, in the 2001 election, Campbell won in a landscape, you know, like took, taking most of the seats in the legislature. Uh, and during that campaign, assuring everyone that BC Rail was safe, was not going to be sold off. However, in 2003, Campbell reversed the, this promise and put the railway up for sale under the guise of saying it was a lease and a partnership, as, as you pointed out, Eric. Uh, what he didn't explain was that the lease could be extended for 990 years. Many people in Prince George and across the southern and northern interior were outraged, including community leaders, unions, indigenous people, lumber and uh, mining supply suppliers, and even people who were liberals. Uh, as a result, there was a committee to save BC Rail formed, which held ra big rallies up here. Uh, one on City Hall uh, lawn was almost a thousand people. There were meetings. There was even a blockade for one day of, of the trains. Nonetheless, the sale of BC Rail went through and the railway was sold off to CN Rail, despite the fact that other bidders, uh, like CP Rail claimed that the whole process was rigged in favor of CN Rail. And it was sold off for $1 billion. But actually, as when all the cards, uh, you know, came due and all that, it was more like $500 million because of a tax indemnity with federal, the federal government, which was a hell of a deal for uh, uh, CN Rail or to actually get the railway for that price. Soon after the sale, however, there was an unprecedented raid by the RCMP on the B.C. legislature. 
two ministerial uh, aides were charged with breach of trust regarding Omnitrox. One of the uh, one of the BC Rail bidders um, was uh, Omnitrox for accept, and and the breach of trust was uh, the ministerial aides were accepting money and favors. Um, the liberal insiders were a number of liberal insiders were involved in this whole process, including Christy Clark's brother, Bruce Clark. Uh, after the raid, an RCMP spokesperson said that corruption had reached the highest levels of government. In any case, what, what it turned out to be was the biggest scandal in BC history. When it went to trial, and just when the trial was getting into some pretty murky areas in terms of the Liberal government's involvement with CN Rail, a deal was made with the accused, the, the two ministerial aides, which ended up with them receiving only a two-year sentence of house arrest uh, for, for participating in, the, in bribery and breach of trust. And, and furthermore, their legal fees of $6 million were paid by the Liberal government, which many thought was a strange in, in agreement indeed. Now, one of the concerns raised when the sale of the railway was first announced in, um, back in the early 2000s was that parts of the BC Rail Line were taken over by CN, over by CN Rail could be, or would be shut down. Let's take a break here, Peter. We're going to take a break here and uh, then we'll be right back. Thanks. Save the dates. The BC Natural Resources Forum is returning to Prince George for an in-person event January 17th to 19th at the Civic Center. The BC Natural Resources Forum offers a positive, nonpartisan arena to discuss and learn firsthand the latest news, trends, and opportunities linked to the resources sector in BC and across Canada. Registration and full details are available at bcnaturalresourcesforum.com. The 20th anniversary BC Natural Resources Forum, January 17th to 19th at the Civic Center. The Prince George Hospice Palliative Care Society has grief support services. Their family grief program supports grieving children, youth, and caregivers through three separate groups, children aged 6 to 12, youth ages 13 to 20, and parents and other adults who care for children. There's also a children's drop-in offered every Tuesday from 3 to 4.30 and one-on-one adult grief support available on the phone or in person. For more information, visit the Hospice Society website at pghp.com. CS.ca. BC Schizophrenia Society's annual general meeting is Saturday, October 15th. Save the date and take part to support the organization and its efforts to improve education and understanding of schizophrenia and psychosis across the province. Find out more about the Society's board through the board and staff link under About Us or become a member through the Make a Difference menu at bcss.org. The BC Schizophrenia Society AGM, Saturday, October 15th. A reason to hope, the means to cope. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud this morning, clearing early this afternoon with a high of 23. Clear tonight, a fog passage developing overnight and a low of 7. For Tuesday, sunny and a high of 22. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. Uh, Peter's doing his uh, monologue on the BC Rail and the history of BC Rail. Uh, I'm just going to let him finish that off, and then we're going to try to figure out what, if anything, we can do about this railway that's basically, for all intents and purposes, a semi-dormant uh, or dormant now. Go ahead, Peter. 
So, as I was saying before the break, uh, one of the concerns raised when the sale of the railway was first announced was that parts of the BC Rail Line in the interior taken over by CN Rail would be shut down. And I know there was various people who raised that. I remember the, the late Ben Meisner uh, was one of the ones on his radio show. Uh, in any case, sure enough, this is exactly what has happened with the Williams Lake Squamish section of the line, which CN Rail has now shut down. As a result, the interior of the province has suffered in terms of a vital transportation corridor and overall economic development. You know, uh, investors look at transportation availability, you know, whether it's rail or road or, uh, or whatever, when they're making investments. That the rail line no longer runs between Williams Lake and Squamish would be a definite factor in terms of any uh, economic development plans. The basic problem is that instead of the originally publicly owned BC rail line being used for the good of the province, it has now been cut up and press-ganged into the narrow interests of a privately owned North American megacorporation, CN Rail, and the public interest be damned. Where once BC Rail was a standalone provincial railway with its own mandate, it has now been reduced to an outpost in a giant North American rail line. In any case, this is a legacy of what the provincial government of that time did. But uh, just to put that in context, you know, how that uh, the Williams Lake Squamish line was shut down, that's the overall context of it. Good. Okay, so <clears throat> so we now got a railway that doesn't run from Williams Lake to Squamish. Uh the roadbed, uh, another way that Campbell got around it, he didn't sell BC Rail. Uh, he just sold all of their their uh, rail cars and everything, and he kept the roadbed. So technically, they still own the railway, but they don't make any money off it other than whatever they get for their lease. Well, they actually, they bought it for a billion dollars. I think that's what the provincial government got. So we've got that problem, and... Uh, and there's no traffic, even from uh, Williams Lake this way. That Those mills that load rail cars, those rail cars come into Prince George. And north of here, uh, all the way to uh, Fort St. John, for that matter, uh, they also come into Prince George. And then they go east, if they're going to the U.S., they go east from Prince George on CN. Or they go, if they're going to Vancouver, they go, they would say uh, CN Kamloops, to Vancouver. It's actually CN to Jasper and then to Vancouver or to Red Pass Junction. But they they kind of don't want you to know that they take it that far east before they bring it back again. Hmm. <laughs> it's a, circu- a circuitous, circuitous route to get it from those outlying areas like Williams Lake and, and north of here into Prince George and then east to the U.S. But when you're working on economies of scale... It's much cheaper to do it that way than it is to run trains down to Vancouver. And if it's CN, they'd have to take it back up to Jasper anyway. And uh, they basically don't interline any of that traffic with the railways that they used to, which was the Union Pacific, the Burlington Northern, Canadian Pacific, and uh, and I think on the tracks like Peter mentioned. So there's no way out now. You've only got one railway in north central BC. It's a monopoly. Uh, other than trucking to Edmonton and uh, loading in CP or something, which has been done on some occasions, but not a good way to do business. So question is, what can we do to revive this railway? Any ideas, Peter? 
Um, well, like I, one of the things that, you know, just to make a note of this that, that's happening that makes me uh, wonder what's going on is you now have the B.C. Liberal Party pushing for an extension of the, of the r- railway up to Dees Lake and the Alaska Panhandle. Uh, you know, which would go through the, uh, or, or near the Spasisi Plateau and so on. And, uh, you know, so you have that being pushed that they're going to extend it. Uh, and then you have the NDP government. What they're talking about is a Vancouver, Seattle, Portland rapid rail. You know, and for me, you know, like w- what's happening here is that uh, they're talking about these two sort of wild goose projects or whatever, right? When the interior of the province uh, has this uh, rail closure, and they're not dealing with the the, the actual rail closure itself, uh, the problem that exists right now, of course, is that um, CN controls everything, right? It, uh, the rail, what rail, what track remains or whatever, and all this is is all folded into whatever their overall North American plans are. And, uh, we get, we get left out. Like, uh, you know, f- for me, the, the, uh, it's essential for a province in terms of rail to have, uh, to have it publicly owned. And, uh, in this circumstance, so like, uh, so- selling off, like, this was a, a huge blow to the province, the fact that, uh, the, uh, BC rail was sold off to them, right? And uh, barring that, like uh, in terms of <laughs> renationalizing, uh, you know, we're going to be under the thumb of um, what uh, CN Rail, you know, plans and thinks, you know, from its uh, offices in other parts of North America, you know. So it's a it's a big it's a big problem. Like this privatization wave. Uh, you know, took place especially in the 80s and 90s and so on, where a lot of this happened all over the place, where CN Rail itself was once publicly owned and uh, was sold off, right? And uh, I, I remember American investors were scratching their head and saying, you know, looking at the Canadian government sending off CN Rail and saying, holy God, what a deal, right? And, um, you know, the same was with uh, BC Rail. You know, so uh, in terms of... Um, the, you know, the BC Liberal plan to, you know, push for extension up to Dees Lake and so on. Uh, one of the, one of the whole problems with that is that the, when that was tried back in the 70s and all this, it, it went way over budget and there was huge environmental problems and there was opposition from indigenous people and so on. So, uh, all of that stuff is still going to be in place. You know, so I, you know, like this talk about going up to Dees Lake and then Alaska, uh, the Spazizi Plateau, the uh, environmental problems that were left behind from the previous attempt at uh, the extension to to uh, Dees Lake and so on. So I, I really wonder where any of that is going to go. Okay, we're going to take a break now, and then we'll come back and. Uh Try to figure out what's going on with this BC Rail. The ECRA is now open Monday through Friday from 9 to 3. Stop by throughout the day to visit friends with coffee and muffins available. There's also a daily lunch ready from 11.30 to 1 on a first-come, first-served basis. Eat in or take out. You can also pre-order each week's special Friday meal up to Thursday afternoon. Stop in to pick up the menu schedule or check it out at eldercitizens.wixsite.com. 
the Elder Citizens Recreation Association on 10th between Vancouver and Winnipeg. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is holding regional healthy living training sessions in person this fall. The sessions are complimentary for those working within Indigenous communities who want to deliver an Honour Your Health Challenge or Indigenous Run, Walk, Wheel program. The Northeast Region session will be at the Coast Hotel in Prince George on October 4th and 5th. Regional healthy living training sessions in person this fall from iSpark. More information and registration details are available at iSpark.ca. Prince George Potter's Guild is offering two try-it nights for people interested in learning how to throw bowls. The sessions are October 5th and November 9th. You'll throw multiple bowls during the session, which runs from 7 to 9 o'clock. You'll then pick one, which the instructor will finish and glaze for you to pick up at a later date. The cost is $50 per session, and you'll be asked to wear clothes and shoes that can get dirty. For more information and to register for the Pottery Try-It Night, go to studio2880.com slash programs. The current live presentation at Theatre Northwest is Becoming Dr. Ruth by Mark St. Germain on through October 12th. It's the little-known story of Dr. Ruth Westheimer's journey from the Jewish girl who fled Nazi Germany to becoming America's most famous sex therapist. Tickets for the play are available at Studio 2880 and through theaternorthwest.com. Becoming Dr. Ruth by Mark St. Germain through October 12th at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm just going to carry on with the BC Rail. I want to maybe point out that, you know, when when BC Rail was sold to CN, there was four or five, six hundred jobs lost. <clears throat> they shut down their intermodal and a few other things. And then, of course, with the line closing from Williams Lake to Squamish, a few other cost-saving measures. I'm sure that we've lost over a thousand jobs with the loss of that railway. And one of the reasons is that the CN doesn't really need it any more than three days or four days a week to uh, go down to Williams Lake and pick up some loads of lumber and go north and pick up some loads of lumber and get a few carloads of coal, I guess, coming out of Tumbler Ridge to go to Prince Rupert. But not having that line open and running means that there's no growth there. You know, how are you going to ship, as an example, how would you ship carloads of wheat from Alberta to, uh, say, Vancouver or Prince Rupert? Well, Vancouver primarily, if you can't get through Williams Lake to Squamish, can't be done. And, uh, and the CN doesn't necessarily care because they can come down the other way. So what you're going to get is a little bit of, of wheat maybe going up to Prince Rupert through Prince George. Uh, so you're restricted on, on what traffic you can handle and also the lumber. All the lumber is going to go with CN and cut off all the interchanges in Vancouver and the competition. Uh, so I think part of the problem that we have, we have these huge uh, deals taking place between private companies and some levels of government. I don't think we have qualified people either in the government uh, and in the municipalities and that they know how to deal with these companies on a, a level playing field. In other words, who's the smartest man in the room? The guy that's looking after the company's interest or some politician that we pulled out of a gunny sack looking after our interests? And I don't think that we have we stand a chance the way it is right now. We need to get smarter and more 
involve politicians in everything that goes on in the province, not just their own little wonderful things down in Vancouver, like Sea to Sky Highway, uh, transit, you know, uh, Highway One, and the and the uh, the uh, what do you call it going in or Highway Number One? Anyway, they they're always spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the freeway there, and it's all a Vancouver-centered. So, uh, sort of Victoria-centered mentality, and nothing's going on up here, and there could be a lot going on. I mean, we've got a lot of country here, and we need people to be elected and put into government that takes our interests into, uh, you know, in consideration before they start throwing all this money around down on the lower mainland. It's just, it's an imbalance, and, and we're not being well served. What do you think, Peter? Uh, yeah, no, well, I would agree, you know, in the sense that, uh, like, what's, what's happened is we have a situation now where decisions are made. Like, this uh, BC Rail is just one example of uh, governments making these decisions by decree, basically. Uh, and uh, the people are left out in the cold. And we don't have the, the, the electoral system itself. Uh, we don't have the mechanisms by which uh, people can exert more control over what government does and hold government accountable. You know, so for me, the part of the whole issue there is that we have to look at the uh, electoral system itself and uh, uh, move towards a, a situation where people are more empowered and have more control. Because right now it's going the opposite way, as you as you point out. Like whole sections of government are being handed over to private interests. But the problem with private interests, like. Uh, CN Rail, you know, running uh, these things and all that, is that they have, their interests are necessarily tied to their shareholders. They're they're narrow interests. And uh, they're not about nation building. They're not about province building or community building. They're about making profits for shareholders. And so there's a fundamental problem there that, um, you you have that you know like the private interest uh, dominating and taking over whole sections of government, and secondly, we don't have the uh, democratic mechanisms by which to hold government to account and to be part of the decision making process. Because, for example, with um, BC Rail, uh, they did polls of it up, up here, for example, and they found that I think it was something like seventy five percent of the people were opposed to. Uh, the, the sale of BC Rail, and this was, uh, you know, from a broad range of people uh, f- feeling that way. Yet that was just it was held it was held in contempt. You know, the the provincial government just held the people of um, this region and the province as a whole in contempt by uh, going ahead with that sale despite the opposition. So, you know, there's there's different there's, there's overall things here that have to be looked at, you know, as we go down the road, right? In terms of where our province is going and where our country is going. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And uh, you know, how we're going to get this to go, I don't know really. There's just so many, so many different things that could be done or should be done, and nobody seems to be working on them. Uh, give you an example. When I was in Prince Rupert in 1962, they were exporting logs to Japan and and fast forward it to today and they're still exporting logs to Japan or China. That's over I don't know how many years, but uh, they just keep doing it and while they're doing it, they say they got a shortage of timber. 
Uh, we're going to take a break, not a break here. Actually, we're coming to the end of the show here pretty quick. I'm going to turn it over to Peter, let him talk for a second or two or three, and then we're out of here. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, the whole... Uh BC Rail scandal, you know, the selling off of the railway and all that is an object lesson in terms of uh, what should not be done in terms of uh, building the uh, the economy and the uh, the system of uh, of the province. You know, so uh, there's there's definite lessons to be learned there, like in terms of uh, uh, what not to be done. The the, the critical issue, the hard, the harder issue that has to be looked at is what kind of mechanisms. Can, could be put in place so that people can have more say and more control over their elected representatives. And, uh, you know, look at, looking at that whole question there, you know, whether it's uh, electoral reform or or uh, other measures, right? Uh, we need, that's, it's one of the, it's one of the, the, the things facing, uh, uh, people in BC, but also in Canada and uh, and even in the world, in terms of like, how do we get it so that people have more control over government? Okay, well, that was our little show for today. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday. Don't know who my guest will be because it's too early to tell. That's that's another story. So uh, I want to thank all the people who were listening today. Thank Peter and. Uh, for coming in and also Mr. Kohler and uh, thank you very much. Bye. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.